somewhere in Westeros. It is such a lovely summer day, isn't it? it oh, it quite is. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh, look, Beautiful. the maester's coming. Oh, oh, hello, maester. How are you today? Sir, 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 I have important news. Oh, my. What is it? What is it? Winter is coming. Oh, my God. That's not good at all. No. Well, thank you for alerting us, maester. You're yeah, welcome, yes. sir. Yes, thank you, thank you. Here's a penny for your thoughts. Three years later. It is such a lovely late summer afternoon, don't you think? Did you drink that tea? I mean, wasn't it like the best tea you've ever had? It was it the most like the fabulous tea I've ever had. It was the topper to a beautiful day. Yes, indeed. Oh, the maester's coming again. Oh, oh, hello, maester. It's been, it's been three years. Sir, sir, winter is coming. It, yes, 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 yes. I do think we, yes, we, we have you. Thank you very much. I believe we covered that. Yes, yes. thank you. Thank you. Well, he's very diligent. Yes, he is. Two years later. Isn't it lovely? I love Westeros in the autumn. My favourite part is when the leaves change. It's beautiful. Oh, look, the maester's coming. Oh! Here we... Yes, that's him. Sir, sir, I have such important news. Oh, my maester, what is it? Winter! Wait, no, don't, don't tell me. Is it coming? Yes! I believe you've told us that several times already, Maester. Look, we, we, we understand. get it. Okay, yes. we get it. We'll, we'll, we'll be sure to, to, to dress warmly. One year later. Sir, sir, winter, oh winter. It's... Look, we get it. We know it's coming. We, I swear by the seven. If you tell me this one more time, I'm going to throw you off that bloody cliff. I, I believe we get it. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> how dense do you think we really are? It appears to be snowing. Oh, it's nice. Welcome to Nerd Zone History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Dave McGuire. Dave, first off, let me just start off by saying thank you for filling in tonight. Super awesome. Eric and Sarah couldn't record tonight uh, due to their crazy schedules. Sarah's working really hard at the day job, and so is Eric. So Dave really offered, when we asked him to jump in and take care of this uh, tonight, uh, he jumped at the opportunity, so we owe him a huge debt. I got to put in my my effort here every once in a while. Otherwise, I'm just the guy that's in a closet that people forget about. And it's true, because if we don't let you out enough times, you might suffocate, and you might go a little nuts. So, Yeah, a little. You can't see it, but uh, there's ticks. Ticks, I hate the dark. Uh, where am I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, we are almost two months since the epic finale of season six of Game of Thrones. God, it's such an awesome show, isn't it? But th- I kept thinking about it as we keep going through it. As I kept watching it, I kept seeing, oh, this is like this person from history. Oh, right. this is like this person from history. And I thought, hey, We've never done an episode about, not just about Game of Thrones, but like about the historical inspirations for the characters and the things that happened in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Did you, um, you when I was texting you about it, you, are you rewatching it right now with, uh, with Vanessa? Uh, no, no, we've, we've all, we've finished it. And so for, just to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit, uh, my girlfriend Vanessa and I 
she had already seen episode everything up through season four. Right. Um, and I had not seen a single episode. And from like early March yeah. all the way through to the, June, to the end of June, we watched every single episode over again. So oh, I, got, yeah. I got a serious, serious crash course in Game of Thrones. I would not recommend binging that show. I, I did the exact same thing Brian did. Probably, I he, he had a good, like, steady diet of, like, two episodes a day, and that's all he allowed himself. Uh, I, I decided to overindulge, and it got to a point where it was just, <laughs> it was literally just so much information to consume, and so many people dying, and I was just like, I... I'm so desensitized. I don't understand. Like I, someone died, I don't care because someone else is gonna die later. I mean, it just don't binge it is my soapbox for it. But do watch. It is a very uh, great fictitious show. But as Brian has stated, because um, once he brought this idea up, there's a lot of really great parallels between you know fictional characters that are within the show and their historical counterparts in real life. Oh, totally, totally, and. Which we probably should say right now, uh, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen a oh. single episode of Game of Thrones and you intend to watch it, um, we'll see you next week, basically, because we're going to go yeah. over some pretty major plot points. We'll go over some minor stuff, too, but there's a couple of major, major spoilers Yes, uh, from everything up and through the end of Season 6 um, that we will be discussing. Um, so... Just forewarning you. Also, I just want to say, too, there's been a ton of blog articles and, and uh, like... Not just blog articles, but like just newspaper articles about Game of Thrones and the historical references here. So there's a lot of great information out there. Yeah, about this stuff. Mental Floss had a really good. Um, it's like I don't know, like twelve things about Game of Thrones that are connected to historical past, and they were all they all linked to the original sources for their um, for the items on their list. So it was definitely a very cool. It was it was a cool like you know microscope into seeing just you know where George R. R. Martin pulled in a lot of his inspiration from, and obviously he's taken some liberties right because there's no such thing as dragons uh, as much as we would love that to be true right? right so there's no there's no blonde girl riding a dragon like you know slaying people with it right uh, so yeah and even then like he takes definite dramatic license and sometimes even combines multiple historical right. um, or other literary figures as well uh, as inspiration for it. So um, why don't we just jump in, okay? Yeah, I just real quick crash course for those that haven't watched uh, Game of Thrones, or maybe you're kind of like a have like a tertiary experience with it. Essentially, there is a fictional place that's essentially London that's called Westeros, and Westeros is divided into seven kingdoms, and you have the the King of the North. Uh, Actually, there's the center of kingdom, which is King's Landing. That's sort of like the the main, the grand, uh, the grand faux pas, like not faux pas, but like the grand uh, king. He's the one who rules everything. And then there's six. There's like lordship. There's six kingdoms. little like lordships. Yeah. Um, underneath him. The, yeah. There's lords in the north. There's the, with the exception of Dorne. Dorne is actually a principality, but they don't have a king because they still have somewhat of right. an allegiance to the king. Uh, in King's Landing. And so, and there's also, it's weird because someone was talking about how Westeros looks, according to the book's illustrations, it kind of looks like um, Great Britain and Ireland flipped upside down, yeah. put underneath it. It looks like kind of like this weird little like geographic yeah, I, uh, hourglass, basically. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense because like, 
isn't the Ireland portion? Isn't that um, where I think it's where uh, Daenerys Arya went after she? Oh, is that where like where the Dothraki are kind of thing? Well, they're in the east, so the, the Dothraki so are technically past the Narrow Sea is Essos, right? And that's out of the jurisdiction of the Seven Kingdoms. There's like there's so in that general area, there's there's the free city of Bravos. There's there uh, we Marine. go. Bravos is the one I was thinking. Of. Yeah, Marine. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, what was the city Zaros that Zaros was in? It was that um, the thirteen people who ran that little city state. I want Zaros was the name of the guy who ended up killing everybody and becoming king of it, but I can't remember what the name of it was. Oh, is that the one where Danny kind of just shows up and like then like steal her eggs and they steal her eggs and then she ends up like, locking like, the find king out that and yeah, one of her handmaids in the safe. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Told Spoilers. You. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's basically this large, but essentially the, the crux of the show is a fight for uh, rulership of this kingdom. It's and essentially it's, a medieval version of risk. Is what yeah. Kind of is. And there's, and it's dictated in kind of the, the players within the game are the house Stark house Lannister house Baratheon. And then I'm forgetting the fourth. There's a bit, Oh, uh, uh Targaryen. How could I forget that? Yeah. They, they are the um, most powerful houses in this world. Those are the four main players. And so if we look back at history, which I think might be a good spot, if you're okay with this is, you know, one of one of these things, or actually this entire fight and struggle for King's Landing and, and the Iron Throne is what, is what they're vying for, um, is very reminiscent of the War of Roses. So the War of Roses was a battle that took place over about 30 years or so. Um, and we're, we're talking about this period. We're talking about the the early 16th century, right? Early 16th or late four, uh, 15th century. Oh yeah, it was like 1455 to 1485 is when okay, the so War late Roses 15th took century, place. Yeah. And what we're and essentially what this was is that there was a house um, of I'm going to probably butcher this, and I apologize. Uh, Plantagenet. Uh, Plantagenet. Plantagenet. And from Plantagenet, there were two houses that were a part of that. They were actually related through, um, I think it's like King Edward was the main. He was again, the house I'm of York, guys, yeah. Yeah, I'm giving you guys the kind of like a Cliff Notes version because I do think, and I, I, I petitioned this to be an episode because it's an episode in and of itself. It's a very fascinating period of time. But King Edward had uh, a, a one section of his family be the house York. Um, and then he also had the the Lancasters, and they were all stemmed from one area. But through this War of Roses, there was a fight for power between the Yorks and the Lancasters. And during that thirty year period, it was a lot of back and forth. Yorks would occupy the throne, then the Lancasters would occupy, and then the Yorks would take over again. And so it was a lot of back and forth, much like uh, what we would, what we've seen, or actually we haven't really seen it. It's been alluded to within the Game of Thrones uh, Westeros uh, world because at the moment Lannisters sit on the throne. Um, before that, there were Targaryens, but before Lannisters and in between Targaryens, there were Baratheons. So as you can see, it's an interchanging, r- rather a rotating door of different houses of who either have usurped the throne or who were you know rightful kings or queens for the throne. And it also comes down to, of course, they have these kind of like these priest-monk characters called maesters, who are the historians, essentially, right. of, of the world. And every major kingdom, including the the Castle Black, which is the wall, it's supposedly the barrier between uh, the north and what's beyond the wall, um, which is these zombie-like snow creatures called white, white walkers. 
and um, uh, and wildlings, which are sort of like barbarians. But they're essentially, but they're just like everybody else. But they just they just live a very um, they're the, the hunter gatherer kind of existence, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're kind of uncivilized, quote unquote. But so the thing that's interesting is that it all depends on who which maester is writing the history, right? Because right. whoever the maester in King's Landing is 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 the official history of of Westeros. Right. So you know, technically speaking. Baratheon, by his standards, Robert Baratheon uh, saved the Seven Kingdoms from a tyrannical king, Mad King, right? Uh, Targaryen. However, if you look at it from other, any other perspective, he was a usurper. He basically he was pissed off because he lost his fiance, and so he led a revolt to overthrow the king. So, exactly. So yeah. I mean, you know, in some cases he's seen as a as a hero, in other cases he's seen as a traitor. So I mean, it's as you said, it's definitely whoever's on what side they're going to dictate what the history is going to look like. Um, and I think what's great about that is that, especially in real life, you know, I'm sure that that's probably the same thing that happened, right? There's a di- bunch of different maesters who wrote down this history. But what's great is as as time has progressed there has been this great you know historical society that's sort of like taken all that information and sort of like filtered out the pieces of like exactly where this war of roses started why it happened and really kind of starts when henry the sixth kind of he's diagnosed with some sort of like mental illness and so he becomes unfit for king and that's when people start like vying for the throne um and there's a couple of things that sort of like play into as to why the war of roses happened so as i mentioned before they were all direct descendants of edward the third henry the sixth who was a lancaster surrounded himself with unpopular uh nobles there was a lot of civil unrest and um a lot of the lords within his kingdom had a lot of private armies, so they're you know they're they're manned up, and as soon as they realize that the person that they're supposed to be following is no longer fit to be king, that's when I think you start to see people start to make power moves and power plays. Um, so, who was the rightful heir? Well, you know, it, as I stated, it kind of goes back and forth between the Yorks and the Lancasters, but it really kind of starts to um, it comes to a head at uh, Bosworth Field in 1485, because that's where, you know, if many uh, thespians out there, Brian, yourself, you would know, right? Richard III, my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse, right? So Richard III came into power after Edward IV died, and uh, he had two sons. One was Edward V, and one was Richard. And Edward V was about 12 years old, so he wasn't quite old enough for him to take over. So they basically were like, hey, and again, um, this is... Dave McGuire research. So anybody who's out there who thinks like, hey, like that's not entirely true, please correct me. I want to hear it. Um, but from what I understand is that Richard III was brought in to be like, hey, can you be sort of like the pseudo king until he's old enough? And Richard III's like, yeah, totally. I'll totally be that guy. And what he, he ends up his, doing. Then he has nephew murdered, basically. Yeah, he puts him in the tower and he's like, hey guys, like you guys can live here until you're old enough. And then they were like, oh, we're this party at my uncle's house. Fantastic. And then they mysteriously disappeared, which is still, um, I mean, there are many people who do believe, and I think it's pretty much well known that Richard III had them killed because they found the skeletons of the two boys in the tower of London in, um, a staircase in like 1674. And, um, but the, it's funny because like, there's still mystery shrouding that entire thing. Yeah. And in fact, because, Philippa Gregory, um, believes that the author Philippa Gregory, when she wrote her book about uh, one of Richard III's wives, um, 
there's actually speculation that all those things were said was actually a smear campaign by the Tudors once the Tudors had taken over. Um, I think I, yeah. it reiterates your point that, you know, whoever was in charge at that point probably wrote that smear campaign. Right. You know, um, yeah. And so there is conjecture. I mean, if we, if we were to believe Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you know, Richard III orchestrated through manipulation the death of his brother and the death of his two son, of his brother's two sons to right. essentially assure that he would become the king. Well, and it's also interesting because there's a lot of speculation um, around that from the Thespian circles because at the time of him writing that, wasn't a Tudor in place? Yes, in, it was. It yeah. was Henry V. So well, it was actually Elizabeth, it was, so it would have been her grandfather. Right. So, you know, he's writing a play, historical fiction or nonfiction. Is it real or was it him just trying to, like, make it look like Richard III, you know, was this horrible human being? just so the, the queen would be like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm probably more inclined to believe that Richard III was probably that play. Because, I mean, let's think logically, right? Like, it's a power struggle, and someone who want, is that close to power and having all the power, you're going to want to get rid of the people that are going to eventually usurp you or stop you from being able to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. So it's very plausible that he, you know... Him and his deformed hand went off and killed his, you know, had somebody kill off his two nephews. So, I mean, it's a mystery, much like Amelia Earhart. Yeah. And to bring it back to Game of Thrones, it's actually quite frequently alluded to that Daenerys Stormborn is the, or Daenerys Targaryen is the, um, is the kind of the equivocation of Henry Tudor. Because if you think about it, Henry Tudor, or King Henry VII by history, he was raised in France. And of course, this is a point in time where even though the French and the English didn't like each other, there was plenty of connections because of nobility and dukes that were like intermarrying with the English. Right. So the Tudors had allies in France. So he was staying there and he was basically trying to build up his own power and resources so that he could take back the, the throne that was taken, he believes was taken from his family. Do you think um, it took him six seasons to do that though? <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> And then he found these dragon eggs, and then, you know. Then he was like, at one point, like, oh, I'm going to just stay in this one town because I'm kind of awesome here. I'm and just going like, to become the king of this little place. And then, Yeah, and then, like, a bunch of people with, like, horn masks, you know, started coming by and, like, you know, murdering people. And But, you know, he freed all the slaves, though. That was that's cool. Good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, um so that's so that's interesting, and you're right. I do kind of see that there, if you look at just the power family, the power struggle between these two, it's. I mean, it definitely feels like Stark and Lannister. Lannisters. And if you even yeah. look at the names, they're they're phonetically not yeah. that far off. Yeah, York and Stark are like okay, maybe, but Lannisters and Lancasters are like okay. Well, that's so it's almost like George R. R. Martin's like okay, I'm gonna have to throw a bone to you guys, or you're not gonna make that parallel. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the Yorks were Warden of the North, and the Lancasters were very opulent and had a lot of money, which is how the Lan the Lannisters are portrayed within the show. I don't know if the Lancasters had money issues like the Lannisters do within the TV series, so much so that they had to, you know, marry themselves off to, uh, God, what's her name? Uh, sorry, pa, uh, God, uh, Natalie Dormer's character. Oh, Marjorie. Marjorie. Marjorie Wait, Terrell, what? yeah. Terrell, yeah, that's it, yeah. I'll take that back. Now, I don't know if they had as much money troubles as, say, the Lannisters do, uh, you know, whereas in the show they have to marry them off to the Terrells just because they're trying to get their money. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, I think, 
I think what I love best about the fact that there are all these parallels is that you're teaching the audiences without them knowing it right. about history. Even though it's very much rooted within fantasy, there's a lot of historical elements that they can draw parallels to. And me being somebody who has to imagine it within my mind's eye, it, I was doing this research and I was able to like, as soon as I made those parallels, I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that totally makes sense. And I can see how the war of roses fight and then this and that. And so, um, you know, if anything, you got to commend the guy for, you know, making those, making the war of roses into a, you know, eight season TV show. Sure. Totally. Shredded in uh fantasy. Totally. And I think it's also worth noting since Martin is known for kind of like taking history and then making it into spin art in a way, the sigil, for House Terrell is the rose. So, yeah. so interestingly, it's like, like he has all these little tiny little like clues that he lays out in his world to say, Hey, reference to history, by the yeah. way. And, um, and like I said, um, if you do do yourself a favor, do some research on the war of Rose. It's a very interesting and very, um, manic view of like what was going on in, in England and, and, you know, during that time period, it's a very fascinating period of, of time. Uh, but I don't want to stay too much on this. I want to move on to something else. Brian, I think you had something. I did. And I want to talk first off. Well, so in the world of Westeros, obviously there are all these different faiths that happen. And one of the most common things you hear on the show is I swear by the old gods and the new. Yep. So what the hell does that even mean? And we're going to talk about that right now. Um, so there are like, let's see, there are one, two, three, there are four different religions that are in practice, actually five different religions that are in practice, um, in this world, in Westeros and Essos. So you've got the faith of the seven, which was, according to George R. R. Martin, brought to Westeros by the Andals. And like, they always say like, I, you know, Stannis Baratheon, first of my name, king of the Andals and the first men. Uh, the Andals and the first men are two different groups of people. The first men were the people who lived in Westeros first. Duh. And then the Andals came after there's a tree people? Oh, no, no, the no. tree people. And some might even argue the wildlings might have been the right. first men um, who were pushed out. And But they worshipped. The, so there's the faith of the seven that was kind of brought by the Andals, which if you look at it kind of like as a historical parallel, it's almost a little bit like um, it's it's got the sense of like, you know, there's a sense of Christianity to it in that this faith was spread all across this land and it took away the pagan faith that was already there. And even though it's pantheonistic, there are tons of references to Christianity. When you hear the mother's mercy and like, that is a complete reference to the Virgin Mary. Uh, the father's wisdom is obviously reference to, to God, the father. Um, then, but then you get into more like more specific things that are not Christian. Like you have the warrior and so on and so forth. Then you've also got the old gods and the old gods very much. If you look at it, you know, you're talking about, they have, you know, you have to go to the God's wood and you see, these ancient mystical trees, and that's how the three-eyed raven gets his power, too. It's like he lives in one of these trees. And then, of course, there's the children who have these, they're almost like these elf-like little beings. You see this, and you see this this faith that has been created that is rooted in uh, Druidism and in just kind of the Celtic kind of mysticism of, yeah. of uh, that part of Europe. So, um, so many parallels that you can find in there. Uh, and then you also get of course, ending the Western part of it, you have the drowned God, which is, a, I don't have an exact parallel for what this is, but it's there. It's f f focused specifically to the Iron Islands, which is the islands uh, occupied by the Greyjoys. They're kind of a medium family. They don't have a lot of money because they take what they, what they, uh, 
rule over. They don't, they don't believe in money. They believe in taking it with iron, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think the Iron Islands is rich in that, so that's why they do that. Um, so they believe in the drowned god. And the whole belief, I mean, you kind of see it in season six with the election, quote unquote, of Euron Greyjoy right. um, to the king of the Iron Islands. And even though they're technically not, they're one of the seven kingdoms and they had their own king, they've kind of been kind of dodgy. They don't really respect the king of kings landing. Um, they just, there's kind of like essentially, a, for more or less a truce that was created because of Ned taking Theon as his ward. It was, that was kind of done as Taking. a means of yeah. keeping peace. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely like an annexed right. area, you know, yeah, where, th- where they when, don't when, have to yeah. deal with, you know, Westeros law, really. Exactly. And so when this, so just for people who don't know, so when the story starts, Balon Greyjoy is the king of the Iron Islands. Theon is his eldest son. And of course, by these rules, they follow the, the Western hereditary rules of monarchy, which is the eldest son inherits the throne. So basically, the North, and therefore Robert Baratheon's friend, Ned Stark, having Theon Greyjoy as custody, gave them leverage over the Iron Islands, essentially. Yeah. So, um, what I do find interesting is, so you have this drowned god, and you have this whole idea of, of election process, where all the nobles of the Iron Islands, or whatever, the soldiers of the Iron Islands, nominate their person, right? And mm-hmm. then they go... Out and this person has to be, they're given this divine test to prove that they are worthy. And in this world, it's being drowned completely. It's being yeah. drowned. And then if he can be brought back, if he can be resuscitated, it's proof that he is, you know, what may, what that is worthy. Yeah. Right. And there's a, there's a slight hint of Christianity there in this whole idea of eternal life. But right. more or less, What's interesting is even though it's not, I can't find a religious parallel, what I find fascinating about this is there's a lot of parallels to the pre-Roman Republic monarchy, to the king of Rome. Um, there's a lot of also parallels to the papacy in this regard, too, because the king of Rome was, before the Republic was, was found, um, was elected by noble families in Rome, and the winner of that election had to go, and they had to basically, they had to determine whether this person had the connection with the gods to essentially prove that he was uh, worthy of the crown. And once he did, he was given imperium, which is basically to say that he was, he was beyond error. Again, you see a lot of, a lot of parallels to the papacy uh, in that regard, too. Um, I, always, I always think that's interesting, because like, especially when I was watching that scene, you know, what if, what if they're wrong? <laughs> you know, they like, you know, they do this drown God thing where they like, you know, they literally hold you under, you drown, and then they bring you back, and then if you come back to life, they're like, hey, you're a king. Like, what if he just doesn't come back and just, like, keep poking with the mistake? Like, hey. Yeah, or to be severely you, you brain okay? damaged because of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He's back, but he only has, like, 25% of his brain capacity. He's like, back, but he doesn't know how to tie his shoes anymore. <laughs> um, he, he, uh, his lip will droop forever, and it's like he had a stroke, guys. Congratulations. Pretty yeah, much. that's your king. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, they probably would just have... Um, it basically, by these rules, yeah, you would then you weren't worthy, and they just they'll just stab him. <laughs> they just probably just drown him again, put him out of his misery, and then they would, you know, um, you know, have another election. Essentially, is he fully there? No, I think he's gone. Okay, let's, let's just stab him, guys. All right, all right, all right. That was cool. a misstep on our part. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. That was a misstep. Yeah. So, so we've talked about drowned gods. We talked about the old gods. There's also the many-faced god, which, if you kind of think about, uh, there is a Roman parallel. There's the god Janus. Who had you no know, was known as having two faces to it, but you know, this whole oh, idea of Jotham? the house of 
black and white in Bravos. Right. You know, it's this god who essentially gives you the power to be a shapeshifter, right? Right. So there, so there is that parallel there. Super specific. It's almost a cult, really. It's not like a practiced religion necessarily in Bravos. I don't think. Though, I mean, it, it kind of is, I guess. Yeah, it sort of is, but it's, yeah, I think cult is a better example because it's it's definitely like cloak and dagger. You have to pass some pretty effed up tests in order to even just be accepted into the fold. And even then, once you're accepted in, you're still being tested. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think if you're going to be a quote unquote a cleric, read that as assassin for that, um, you have to go through all those tests. But like, but obviously, like the the townspeople of Bravos know about this this faith because they go for seeking seeking for answers and relief, and usually it just means they kill them. They just right, they, take their face. Here's money, and then like you know, go kill that person. Yeah, here, drink this. It tastes funny. No, it doesn't. Yeah, I think, but I think, I think uh, saying that it's a cult, I th- works better because it definitely it doesn't really fall into the confines of like what a religion is, because like they they do worship this many faced God, but there's really not a whole lot of worship. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, it's definitely more along the lines of here are the, here are the rules that are set by the many faced God. You have to denounce everything that's about you and just embrace who this new person is. And then like, Oh, by the way, we also go out and kill people and then we steal their faces so we can use them later. Like I would laugh hysterically if like you walked into like a Catholic church and they're like, welcome my friends. Here are some faces wear them and then go murder people right it's it's this very very arcane kind of right uh collection of beliefs and it's even made more disturbing by the fact that when you get to season six you essentially find out that the many-faced god the cleric for the many-faced god you know in this case it's jaken he's essentially basically killing whoever's he's being given money to kill so there's there's very like there is this mystical element to it because they can change faces and it's kind of creepy that they can do that. Right. But yet who's like, is it really a God or is this more or less just these mystical assassins? Right. Right. So, um, but the one that I think is the most fascinating and also the most elusive and kind of like, well, is this a good religion or a bad religion is the red faith, right? Yeah. The Lord of light. Yeah. Right. The only monotheistic religion, well, next to the drowned God, I guess, but like the true, like, because when you talk about like the one true God that they espouse in this faith. This one takes the cake. Yeah. And you you might think Christianity, maybe even Islam with it. Not at all. I actually think Zoroastrianism. What is that? What is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. So Zoroastrianism um, is one of the most ancient religions um, that we have. It's about only about a thousand years younger than Judaism, but still, that means it's a four thousand year old religion. Um, and it is most of the people today who are still Zoroastrian um, live in uh, in Iran um, because it's from it's from Persia. Um, okay. Let me go back to Westeros for a moment. So you have or Essos in this case. You have the Lord of Light, Relor, right? And you know, they're very much, they talk about, you know, the night is dark and full of terrors, and they, have, they use fire a lot as their analogy, right? Um, and, you know, the, the priests and priestesses of the Red Faith use fire to create magic. And also to communicate with the, with the Lord of Light, too. That's right, like their, exactly. That's just and, their communication. And honestly, when you look at the Eastern faiths a lot, light, and associating light with God, I mean, even in, in Rome, you know, Apollo was the sun god, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about this way back when we talked about Nordic traditions, too. Worshipping light was worshipping goodness because 
night was dark and was scary. And it was come as like this whole secular nature of, of the existence, right? So extrapolating that into candles and into fire and into that for focus just makes sense. And this is certainly true in Zoroastrianism. When they would go to temples, obviously there's candles and there's a, there's a focus on light to help with prayer. Um, but essentially what this story goes down to is 4,000 years ago, there was a guy named Zarastura, um, who, which in Greek has been rendered as Zoroaster, basically. Um, and he was just kind of this everyday guy who was spoken to by uh, Ahura Mazda. And Ahura Mazda basically is in, it's this, so the, the, the text of, um, of Zoroastrianism is written in a very old form of, per, of a Persian called Avestan. Hmm. And in Avestan, uh, Ahura Mazda means wise lord. Um, and they actually, to them, they don't actually call it Zoroastrianism. They call it Mazda Yansna. And Mazda Yansa literally means worshiping the Lord. So it's basically acknowledging that there's this, this one true God, this is wise Lord. Hmm. Um, and, and you see lots of parallels to all the, 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 the religions that come out of the, East, uh, the Middle East. Um, there is what they call divinities, which are essentially, you know, it's their form of, of angels uh, and other spirits who sit below God. There is a, there's a, a bad one called the Great Other. That I'm um, oh, sorry. The great other is the Lord. Is the, the the parallel to this in Westeros? But there is essentially, you know, a dark spirit, a fallen spirit, very similar to Lucifer in Christianity. Very interesting to see the similarities between not too far away regions who are coming up with similar beliefs structures. I think it's just that's so cool. Like way to make a, a really unique poll. Yeah, and what's interesting too is like you mentioned right before you got into your explanation was that you know is it good or is it bad? At this point, from a show's perspective. We're really quite. We're not quite sure if the Lord of Light is a good thing or if it's a bad thing. Like, we've seen it be good and be used for good, i.e., Jon Snow coming back to life. Uh, sorry, spoiler. Uh, but we also saw it be a bad thing when she created this shadow demon that like came out and then like stabbed uh, Stannis's brother in the back. Right, blood magic. Right, smoke demon baby from her womb. Right, uh, which was that was that confusing. Was it, from being, you know, a twenty-something guy, like it was a very confusing moment to have. It was like, uh, oh no, what is happening? This is not. Oh, oh, what is that coming out? Oh, oh, good God! Right. Oh my! <laughs> well, you, you, have to, you have to love the look on Sir Davos's face as he's and watching this whole thing like, What is happening? No one is going to believe this story. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's what's interesting about all these faiths is that. There's evidence that all of these have existence. So it's like Martin's kind of this whole idea of coexistence and that no re religion is superior to any one of them. Because you see very evidently, you know, the spirit in the God's wood. You see, obviously, the many-faced God's power is present. You see the Lord of Light's right. power is present. So it's this very interesting allegory that he's making about, you know, religion should probably coexist. There really isn't one who's superior to the others. Right. Yeah, it, it's funny because all their fighting is not based off of religion. It's all based off of power. Exactly. Not once uh, has it been like, you know, oh, I want to do it in the name of this. It's it. They use religion as an aid. You know, uh, for example, uh, Stannis Baratheon uses the religion of the power uh, of the light god as an aid to kind of guide him along the journey. Like, am I doing this right? Am I going in the right, right. direction? Um, it's never that he storms the castles, you know, 
like on Blackwater. It's not like he's saying it like, ah, oh, for the Lord of the Light. Like, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is because, like, okay, this is what I'm being told to do. This is what I'm, um, for, uh, you know, this is what I'm fated to do. So, right. you know, it's always in help of the hero's journey rather sure. than being the purpose. Exactly. And so, I mean, with that, it goes almost goes without saying that when you look at the high sept in King's Landing, you look at the high sept and, I mean, it looks like St. Peter's Basilica just with the centigram or septigram uh, instead of the, you know, <laughs> a crucifix there. And it, it's, it's this, first off, amazing effects work and amazing art design because the, the temple of the high sept just looks fantastic. It's gorgeous. And we've talked about this before, but there's a very clear allegory there between that and like the Catholic Church and this oh, opulence. Yeah. And when you see in season five the introduction of this mysterious guy called the High Sparrow, right? You see this like the sparrows are this like offshoot, reformed version of the Faith of the Seven, and they end up um, unseating this corrupt High Sept. And through the machinations of Cersei Lannister, the High Sparrow becomes the high sept. Well, they're also, they're also the kind of religious folk who are, um, they, they follow the, they follow the letter. They follow the book to the letter in terms of, they are always trying, like they've ne they never reach plateau. They never reach a point where they're like, Oh, I'm looking at me. I'm saved. Like they're always like, I can, I, I don't have shoes. Like I, I always have to give myself to the Lord. So it's always, a. They're they're very much like let's go by the letter of the of the of the good book. No, totally. And so there's a there's a lot of things going on with this, um, particularly with the the sparrows, because there's they're they're kind of a mixture of Calvinist, Jesuit, and Franciscan all at the, all at the same time. It's kind of crazy. Um, but more specifically, the high sparrow reminds me of kind of a little bit of John Calvin and Saint Augustine. Interestingly enough. He's kind of a combination of the two, um, in the sense that, well, in the sense that John Calvin was a reformer, you know, he, John Calvin was a French lawyer, you know, in the, in who he decided to break from the Catholic church in 1530. Uh, I believe he was a canon lawyer, which is a, a, a lawyer within the Catholic church. I could be wrong with that, but I just know he was a lawyer by practice. That's good. Cause I really like, thought that he was like a defense lawyer for canons. Right, Very and not like, not, I mean, I think also Martin Luther was, was a lawyer, then he became a priest um, as well. Um, so there's an interesting parallel there, but basically John Calvin, he took a number of issues with the church. One is he didn't acknowledge the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist when it came to communion, but also he saw the crucifix, the, um, the veneration of the saints, even music, using music in worship as all um, contradictory to the Bible's teaching against, against idolatry, essentially. So he saw the church as worshiping false idols. And so his logic was to strip the church from, of any of that opulence and focus just on the word, just on, on uh, the, the Bible. And the high sparrow totally represents this because there's that one scene in season five when he has that meeting with, with Cersei and he shows her this very old stone, ancient altar, and how he uses that as the allegory for the faith. And like, this is what we are like. We all have to be stripped down to what's this, what this essential is, to figure out who we really are. Yeah. Which is an awesome scene because it ends up that Cersei is imprisoned because, you know, 
you found, you found out that her cousin, who was also a sparrow, did a lot of confessing and confessed to him, to her, him and her having, you know, relations. Inappropriate relations. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's how he's like a John Calvin. A common theme within the show. Yeah. So that's how he's like John Calvin. But yet later in season six, he t- you finally learned a little bit about his backstory. And you find out that the High Sparrow was this well-to-do, well, well wasn't well-to-do, but he was, a, he was a successful middle-class merchant who, like, he loved party, and he had talked about all these, you know, these sexual exploits. He was mm-hmm. obviously fairly well-educated because of the way his voice sounds. Um, and that actually reminds me of St. Augustine, because even though Augustine now is recognized as this early Catholic bishop and highly influ- influential church father, um, who, whose ideas pretty much formed the, a lot of Catholicism. In fact, I believe he was present for the Council of Nicaea during all that. So it's like his ideas and his approach to philosophy essentially helped form the Catholic Church as we know it. Um, but before, prior to that, he was raised in a Christian family, but he didn't buy into Christianity. He was a Roman citizen living in Hippo, which is modern-day Algeria, so North Africa at this point. Um, and he rejected Christianity. He, 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 he actually liked to break the rules because he could, because he was of this higher social stance. And he talks about in his book, The Confessions, about his numerous, numerous sexual exploits. In fact, he fathered an illegitimate son uh, <gasps> with this Carthaginian woman um, that he was with for 15 years. Did you say carcinogenic woman? Carthaginian. Car- so uh, oh. it means you're from Carthage. Carthage is another... Part of She's not a byproduct of cigarettes. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. No, it's not, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> not carcinogen. No. Carthage. Carthaginian. Okay. Carthaginian. Um, Man. It's in Africa as well. Okay. It's again. It's a. It's an ancient Roman reference to a part of Africa. Uh, Hannibal was from Af- was from Carthage. He of course bested Alexander the Great. So anyway, and then he had that kind of no joke. He had this come to Jesus moment when he was in, when he was thirty one, and he finally learned to uh, to convert because of other friends who were educated and well-versed who were also Christian. So he was kind of brought in through rationalization into Christianity. And then once he had taken that jump and he became this, I mean, he decided to go all the way. He decided to become a priest, take a vow of celibacy, eventually was, was consecrated as a bishop. Um, so it's interesting to see that there are these parallels that Martin uses for that character and i was really surprised that no one had talked about that at all um maybe it's just because i'm a nerd when it comes to the ch- to church history but like i was watching no i i think it's that i think it's just your nerd of church history oh, okay <laughs> well fair enough but like who you mean like cersei or anyone else talking about it or no i mean like when when we were doing all this research and looking for all these articles about historical parallels everyone talks about oh yeah it's the yorks and and uh, the Lancasters, Lancasters, the Starks and Lannisters, and, you know, like we talked about Daenerys being Henry Tudor, but no one talked about the High Sparrow, and I was like, that's kind of shocking, because it's it's all very present, it's all very, very there. I, I would be venturing to guess that I'm sure that if you found some theological PhD individual out there, I'm sure they could help, I mean, I'm sure it's out there, I just don't think it's on the, on the, surface of internet searches it's probably just people aren't all that interested but um they're like religion yeah where's the boobs exactly and there's there's the episode title (laughs) uh where's the boobs yeah 
and balls too while we're at it. So there you go. Um, yeah, they're very uh, they're they're they they uh, they like to do both. Um, so we we have a couple other ones we want to do honorable mentions of. I think before we get to the big the piece de resistance, right? Yeah. So I had two. So one of them was the wall. So Brian had mentioned. Um, or you had mentioned just a, a couple minutes ago about uh, the wall, which is this, um, God, I don't even know the dimensions. It's this 80-foot ice uh, wall, probably even higher. I mean, it's massive. And this wall is there to protect, as Brian said, to you know protect Westeros and all that's within Westeros from wildlings or the barbarians. Uh, and also protects them from these mystical creatures that are called the, uh, the Night Walkers. White Walkers. The White Walkers. Sorry. I'm thinking of the Night's King and they put them two together. Um, but what's interesting is that, and I, I, this one actually shocked me a little bit because I thought the wall was obviously it's fictional, but I had no idea that it has some roots within history from, uh, Hadrian's wall. So who was Hadrian? Uh, Hadrian was a Roman emperor from, uh, 117 to 138. And he rebuilt the Pantheon and he constructed the temple of Venus in Roma. And so what he wanted to do was he built this wall from the North sea to the Irish Sea, and basically what it is, it's like this this stone wall that they use their environment. So some of the terrain was uh, was different as they went across, and it's in northern England. And there's literally remnants of it here. It's a huge tourist attraction. If you even just look up uh, Hadrian's Wall, there's a whole website. I got a lot of my information from there. But like, you can get bikes, you can walk it. Like, I mean, it's this huge, huge attraction for people. But what was great about it was that. They basically, for every five Roman miles, there were forts that were built up. And so these men, these these auxiliary, uh, you know, uh, warriors and, and, and people or military guys were staying within these forts. And basically the wall was there to stop barbarians from entering in unwanted into the, I think at that time, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Roman Empire. And basically... Yeah. What it did was it was funneling them down into designated areas where they had to enter in with either escorts or they had to go through proper channels. But I mean, what's so, I mean, like I said, it, it blew my mind to know that, like, you know, okay, so England and Ireland are sort of like the, you know, the entire landscape of this fictional show, but that this wall exists and that it's there to keep out barbarians, which are essentially what the wildlings are portrayed as being from the people of Westeros. I mean, granted, we get to spend a lot of time with them and we, we realize that they're just people who are sort of like the underclass, the lower of lows on the, on the class scale. Um, you know, which I'm assuming that these barbarians are probably, probably were right. You know, um, we assume because there's no historical evidence that there were any, uh, white walkers during this, uh, time period. Uh, we hope just um, very, very, very pale Celts. Just very, very pale Celts. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great about it is like, you know, in the show is like that, that's what the show has been leading up to because the wall takes is such an important character in and of itself within the show, because it's where Jon Snow learns to kind of become a, 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 an adult. He grows up there, but it's also the, it's like, it's the last stopping point before the white walkers are now like fully within Westeros. And for six seasons, They've been like slowly, and when I say slow, I mean they have just been slowly walking, getting closer to the wall. And now they're like a mile away from the wall. I couldn't even tell you. 
all I know is that they're there. It's within so sight, this, basically. It's like, within sight. So, I mean, to me, like, that was a really fascinating piece about it. And then the other thing is, because I hated this character so much, and I love to hate him, we all did, Joffrey. Joffrey Lannister, I say with quotes. Actually, no, Baratheon with quotes. He's actually a Lannister. Um, he, let me um, bring this up here because this was really fascinating. He was actually uh, based off of Edward of Westminster. So he's the son of Henry VI, and he died at the Battle of, uh, I think, yeah, Tewkesbury on May 4th in 1471. And this guy was, we get we get bleeps, right? We get three an episode. This yeah. guy was an asshole. I mean, the biggest asshole you've ever seen. I mean, he was bloodthirsty. He and he was thirteen when he was having all these blood. He lists. was yeah, like there's a quote. There's a woman by the name of like Susan Higgins. Uh, uh, if you just uh, type in Joffrey and then look it up, like there's this great quote that talks about how at thirteen he was talking about war and dismembering bodies and like he beat up and like did some bad things to his wife and Neville. I mean, this kid at thirteen was just such a terror. I mean. A legitimate Joffrey in real life. I mean, a character who, by all accounts from from avid watchers of the show, was the most despicable person next to um, Ramsey Bolton. Was pretty close. Was was, was well, actually Ramsey Bolton. Worse, I think. But... Like I think we all thought like it's over. Like yay, we don't have the. And then Ramsey Bolton came on the scene, and we were like, oh oh god, he's worse. Wow. He's way Joffrey worse. Look, Joffrey um, looks like a like a Sunday school kid, like asking for milk. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> just it, it's just terrible. But yeah, I mean, it's a pretty horrendous thing. I, I look him up. I mean, it's a pretty um, disgusting thing what this guy did, and he died. And what's and what was sad was that a lot of people, you know, even though he was thirteen, there wasn't a lot written about him. But what was written was just like this kid's bad. <laughs> this yeah. guy is a d- and he died oh, in a pretty gruesome Sorry. way too. He was stabbed. And, yeah. Yeah, so um, pretty, pretty bad. Again, by someone who betrayed him. Um, unlike, of course, Joffrey in Game of Thrones, who was poisoned. Um, yeah. And frankly, I don't think anybody was sad when Joffrey died. Everyone was like, oh my God, are they actually going to kill him? Oh, uh, Brian, as we mentioned, like we were both late to this... To the, to the party when it came to watching Game of Thrones, but when that episode aired originally in real time, the the amount of social media conversation that took place around it. I mean, it was as if like it was like the battle of Yavin had happened and like the Death Star blew up and like everybody's like on the steps and there's parades and there's confetti and everyone's like, yay, he's gone. We're just so happy. I mean, it was just everyone was just so elated that this character who was just so just uh all I can say is crossbows and prostitutes. That's all I can really say without being too graphic. And even it's that, true. I feel, is a little graphic. It, 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 I was thinking the same thing. and it's Which sucks, too, because it was the girl that, who you met in the first episode. I know. You, you're you, like, you I like, to like you. Her. <laughs> and just completely without warning, oh, yeah. Gone. Six arrows, at least. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, yeah. really, really disgusting kid. Yeah, what a f- um, And there's number three, folks. So... But, you know, there's one more honorable mention before we get to, again, the Piesta Resistance. Actually, there's, well, you have one more, too, I think. But let's talk a little bit about Lyanna Stark. Yes. Um, oh. 
so, such a hot topic within that within the fan base, particularly right now, right? Because R plus L equals J. So, um, am I right, fans? Am I right? Yeah. Uh, so, Leanna Stark um, was the sister of Ned Stark, of course. Was promised to marriage to Robert Baratheon, got kidnapped by Rhaegar Targaryen, and as the story goes, as history of, of Westeros goes, was raped and murdered. And uh, Ned made uh, Lyanna promise on her deathbed to avenge uh, her death, basically. Which sounds a lot like Lucretia, um, who was a Roman figure who was kidnapped and raped by the son of the Etruscan king. Uh, kind of like Rhaegar was the son of the, of the you know, king and King's Landing at that point. Mad King. The Mad King, exactly. Aegon. Um, Targaryen. So, um, kind of interesting. But yet, at the same time, we have this shift. In fact, by the way, I want to say that, so, Lyanna's last words are, promise me, Ned, right? Promise me? Yeah. Lucretia's last words are, according to history, pledge me your solemn word that the adulterer shall not go unpunished. Oh. Like, Martin was essentially paraphrasing history with this. Yeah. Well, and plus there's, I mean, depending upon who you talk to, right? I mean, it's very well known that, you know, part of the reason why within, within Game of Thrones lore, Lyanna Stark wasn't kidnapped. She willfully well, went so away with yeah, Rhaegar yeah. Targaryen. And in that sense, that's where we're going to make a flip. Because in that way, she's actually kind of like Helen of Troy. Because Helen of Troy, if you read Good The call. Iliad. Yeah. Yeah. If you read The, the, read the Iliad. According to Homer's account, she was kidnapped by, you know, King Priam's son, Paris, right? And whisked away and all that stuff. And supposedly raped. But yet Sappho, the poet Sappho, alleged that no, she went, she went willingly. And that she actually re- was digging Paris. Which is kind of what we find out. That actually, she wasn't so hot on Robert. She liked her some Rhaegar. And, um, <laughs> and it turns out... She liked her some Rhaegar. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> And it turns out they had this secret son, son, who we find out. Who's ambiguously pointed out to be Jon Snow. Yes. Never directly said, but the camera It's confirmed at this point, lie. though. It's confirmed. In fact, so much confirmed that HBO posted uh, a family timeline chart, a flowchart, that basically flat out says that Rhaegar and Lyanna's son is Jon Snow. So, who, who for six seasons we had thought was the bastard son of Ned Stark... And but St- Stark being this man who is you no know, honorable, uh, uh, ever noble, um, promises his sister that they won't tell the truth, and so you know he has to make and he even risks his relationship with his wife at that point, right? To say yeah. that you know, nope, I cheated. I'm sorry. This is my. I thought I, w- I wasn't gonna coming home. How crazy is that? Like that's first off amazing writing, but second of all, again, that's another. A, that's a damn good brother. Yeah. Like, I'm willing to risk everything about my life in order... I mean, granted, the stakes are high, right? Because if, within the world of Westeros, if Robert Baratheon had discovered that Jon Snow was of Targaryen blood, Jon Snow dies, you know? Pretty and, much right away, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, and Lana Stark, you know, is basically like, hey, this is your nephew, please take care of him. Um, and that's her dying wish, and he yeah. he's, you know, very... He, Ned Stark is is from, you know very close to family. Family oh, yeah. is very important. And just to put a button on this. Oh, by the way, here's what happened with history: because the Etruscan kings were ruling Rome, and because this happened, 
someone led a revolt and overthrew the king and established the Roman Republic. So, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, kind of funny how that works out. Um, yeah. You wanted to talk about Greek fire for a second and wildfire. Yeah. Yeah. So, wildfire is this great. So, anybody who's up to speed, right? For the most part, we've only really seen wildfire in a couple of episodes. One, we knew that down underneath King's Landing, there are just like barrels upon barrels upon barrels upon barrels and upon barrels of this green fire. It's just... just, It's it's essentially medieval napalm. Oh, man, this stuff's nasty, but it's awesome. Like, so at this point, uh, you know, having just coming off of season six... Up until the season finale of season six, like we'd only seen it once, and it was used quite effectively within the end of season two, or the the penultimate episode of season two, uh, Battle of the Blackwater, where basically uh, King Joffrey, who is incapable of, of leading anything, let a, you know, and he just he just can't do it. He's just just a chicken ish. Um, his right hand, which at that time is uh, is Tyrion Lannister comes up with this idea of like sending the ship out and just exploding up uh, Stannis Baratheon's fleet of ships with this wildfire, which is like this really nasty fire stuff that lights on the water. It can, you know, it spreads really quickly. It's got this just really powerful impact. It's a great weapon, great tool. And we're all like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then season six rolls around and the end of the season ends with this tremendous explosion where basically Cersei Lannister there's this great gif that's like online where you know the ones where like the the digitized 8-bit sunglasses come down and then like they have like the marijuana cigarette sticking on and it's like like a boss or whatever like she watches as King's Landing at that part of the Sept you know the the high Sept's you know uh, church area explodes in this just Massive she's drinking fireball. wine. She's, sipping she's just wine. sitting back, sipping wine, and it's just like the most badass thing we've ever seen in a show. In, in the show at that point, but this Greek fire, uh, the wildfire comes from the actual Greek fire. So Greek fire was this very similar, highly flammable, highly compressed, and and pressurized, and it would be shot out of a siphon. And I mean, this stuff was nasty. Like it would get onto the water. Um, the only real way to kind of snuff it out would either be, what was it, sand? Um, some, so, so basically, some people said that it would burn on water. It could also be ignited on water. Um, it could be extinguished by sand, strong vinegar, or old urine as a way of snuffing it out, uh, which means Howard Hughes would be a perfect person to go to to ask to put this out. He's like, I got uh, jars of this. Wait for the future. Wait for the come future. on, wait, wait for the future. Um, <laughs> but what's great is that even today, there's a lot of theories about what's made up Greek fire, and no one really kind of knows the exact answer. Um, the biggest theory out there is that it might be made of saltpeter or gunpowder because there's a lot of descriptions of it being used where there's like thunder and smoke which is very reminiscent of like some sort of gunpowder. Right. Um, right. And most importantly, as I mentioned, the Blackwater battle, which is a, which was a huge battle for the fans of the show and also for the show itself, because it was like the first major battle that was actually shown on screen. And the, this actually borrows heavily from the siege of Can- uh, Constantinople from 1717 to 1718, in which oh, except you know, 717 to 718. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have the Battle of Blackwater is very much heavily relied upon that because you have the Arab nations that are trying to in, uh, infiltrate the Byzantine Empire and go to the city capital of Constantinople. And they are trying to do it both by sea and by land. And what's interesting is that the, you know, the Byzantine Empire basically had impenetrable walls where they just could not get them through, like, you know, land, land fighters were, were trying to go through the walls, and they just, it just was not happening. Um, so they also tried through a naval fleet, and that naval fleet was just burned to, to pieces with this Greek fire. In a very similar fashion, mind you, that Tyrion Lannister did, they would basically just have this ship come up, and there's, there's depictions of these massive ships with, like, dragons at the not the mast, but at the, at the front of the ship with open mouths. And from those mouths is where the Greek fire is coming out and being shot upon the boats of the Arab nation. You know, needless to say, <clears throat> because of that, um, and, and, and through history, right, we know that <laughs> the Arab nation was not able to conquer the Byzantine Empire. They weren't able to actually make their siege happen, and they uh, ended up retreating and going home. Right, yeah, it wouldn't be until the Ottoman Empire took control in the 15th century that it would, in fact, fall finally and become Istanbul. Um, you're, totally, you're totally right, and it's awesome. And it's also, it's crazy, because we talked about this briefly, 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 because it was also used by ancient pirates in the Greek world as well. We talked about it in our piracy episode. It, it just stuff, it's just it's essentially an ancient flamethrower, and just this image of seeing a dragon ship breathing fire. Probably there was a lot of pants being peed on yeah. at this point. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I can just imagine that. Like, again, it's one of those situations where it's not funny, but it's comical to think that like the one guy who survives is going to be like, no one's going to believe me when I tell this story. <laughs> not a single person. <laughs> totally, I totally buy it. Okay, so. We've talked a lot about this. We, we, we have to talk about what is arguably the most famous episode of Game of Thrones, The Reigns yes. of Castamere, season three finale, also known as The Red Wedding Red episode. Wedding. Because The Red Wedding, for those who don't know, so once Ned Stark meets his end, which he does at the end of season one, uh, his son Rob decides, uh, well, uh, screw this. I'm going to become King of the North. And essentially starts the Battle of Five Kings because Stannis is now vying for the throne. Uh, there's a couple other kings who are vying for it. And so uh, basically in order to, to gain the support of this surly lord named Walder Frey, uh, Rob's mom, of course Ned's widow, Catelyn, um, makes a deal to, to marry her brother. Uh, or is it her brother or is it her cousin? Her cousin is, uh, isn't that the black, blackfish? No, no uh, her uncle is a blackfish. Her uncle's a blackfish, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, but it, yeah, he, the, basically they want to use his bridge. Right. To so get, they, to, so, so they make, they strike a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so Rob was already promised to marry one of Walter's daughters, but Rob met this other girl, fell in love with her and they got I'm, married already. And so, he impregnated her. Exactly. So basically, to make up for that, Catelyn offers one of her relatives uh, instead. But Walder's kind of a, a, a bastard. And so at their wedding reception, after they go to the, the bridal chamber to, com to uh, uh, consummate their marriage, um, there's this famous song called The Reigns of Castamere, which is a, oh that tells of a tragedy God. about massacre. They close the 
gates, and then basically everyone just fucking dies, including Rob, including Kathleen, including Rob's pregnant wife. In the most gruesome of ways. Yeah, she's as like well. stabbed in the gut like seven times, like right where the baby is, like really. And then awful. Rob is stabbed, and then he's finally shot with like an arrow or something. And then eventually and he's beheaded because they they parade his body. And what and sucks they, is that his younger sister Arya had just made it there because she wanted to go to the wedding, and she sees her brother's decapitated corpse with 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 his dire with wolf, dire wolf yeah. head on it being paraded around as the king because he called himself the young wolf, and so yeah. like, they were mocking him. Um, horrible, gut wrenching. Not no pun intended. This is truly a gut wrenching episode to watch. Um, very graphic. So very, very, so very, if you very are going to watch, you are warned. It's a very graphic. Gr- I mean, in detail yeah. episode. Yeah, and it, so it turns out there's actually a few historical parallels to this one infamous episode. Um, the most commonly referred to though is the Black Dinner. Uh, which was uh, happened in Scotland in 1440. As we talked about in the Jacobite episode, there, there's two lineages for James, right? Um, so there's James Stuart was James the first of England, but he was James the sixth in Scotland. So just to make sure there's no confusion here, we're talking about James the second. We're talking about James the actual second of Scotland, not James the second from the Jacobite uh, episode. So. Um, Basically, to make a long story short, uh, King James I dies, and King James II ascends to the throne, but he's only like nine or ten years old. He's, he's too young to ascend. So what ends up happening is his mother, um, Joan Beaufort, who's the queen, is named co-regent alongside uh, the Earl of Douglas, Archibald Douglas. He was a well-respected and very wealthy and very powerful earl in Scotland. So they agreed that they were going to co-rule uh, Scotland until James was ready essentially. Um, the power players that come into place, though, is that Archibald's son, William Douglas, who is the, eventually would become the sixth Earl of, of Douglas, is kind of headstrong and ambitious, and I think he kind of saw himself as eventually becoming the king. What was interesting is that, aside from this, there's all this political intrigue going on. You've got, um, in each castle, um, no, all the castles, and I mean, the two particular castles we're talking about, Stirling Castle and uh, Edinburgh Castle, are these citadels. So they've got walls around them, and they're, they're pretty well protected. And so you've got Sir William Crichton, who is the governor of Edinburgh Castle, and you've got Alexander Livingston, who is the governor of Stirling Castle. And uh, they're both kind of like trying to vie over who has the most influence with the young King James. And it actually gets to the point where Livingston arrests Joan Beaufort and like restricts her like, on in house arrest in Edinburgh Castle, or I should say in Stirling Castle, and Crichton, like, lures the young King James to a park where he normally would play, then ambushes him and kidnaps him, and he's in another castle. So mother's in one castle, co-regent, and then King is in another castle. It's just, it just got pretty bonkers. Eventually, they form a truce, and they realize that they, they don't really, they're not the problem. What's the problem is uh, the sixth Earl of Douglas is a problem, because Archibald, being the co-regent, eventually, he dies of a fever in 1439, so, because of that, um, it's believed that William was going to use this as an opportunity to kind of like, you know, seize power. Um, so, Crichton and Livingston teamed up, and they said, okay, you know what, your family, no, let's make, let's make nice, let's make nice, go and come and have dinner at our place. So, they have a feast, King James II is there, and again, he's still fairly young at this point, and, uh, 
very much like you would imagine in Game of Thrones. There's a certain point where like they 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 lock the doors, they and they pretty much beheaded both William and his younger brother David right in front of the king. <laughs> Didn't they do like a mock trial too, where they kind of paraded the kids out into like the the court? The courtyard, and and then they—that's where they kind of sentenced them, quote unquote, and then beheaded them there. Yeah, I mean, they they basically trumped up charges that they were fixing to commit treason, and right. yeah, exactly that's what happened. Uh, and then eventually, once James II became old enough and did assume the crown, he eventually punished the Douglas family even later, and he favored the Livingstons a little bit more than he did the Crichtons. But when there was other family members related to them that were potentially enemies of the crown, he was more lenient on them later on. Um, that's one of four real life occurrences that happened. So that's the, that's the big one. Let's talk about Glencoe. Yeah. So there's the massacre of Glencoe, which happened in 1691 in Scotland. And so when we were doing our research, these two really kind of surfaced as being like the, the main influences or inspirations for the red wedding. Um, and this one doesn't really do so much with dinner, but this one, you know, like I said, is about all the Scottish clans, were called upon to renounce the deposed king of Scotland, James the Seventh, and they had to Ooh, sign. This is, this is the, the the other James the Second that we're talking about. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is yeah, this is the seventh, right. and so they basically had to um, they had to swear an allegiance to the new king William of Orange, and so the way that it was supposed to be done is that by January first of sixteen ninety two, they had to provide a document swearing oath to William. Well, you have one clan, um, the Highland clan of McDonald. Um, they were kind of in a pickle at this point because, A, number one, the, the Secretary of State that was working with King William of Orange, John Durimple, maybe? Uh, you know, if you're writing in, let me know if I said that wrong. Um, Dalyrimple? Maybe. Yeah. So, John, the Secretary of State, loathed the clan McDonald. Uh, like, he just absolutely hated these guys. And then number two, the clan of McDonald had already just sworn allegiance to James VII, and they had to wait for him to give permission to, like, denounce him, basically, so that way they could say, you know, okay, yeah, we swear allegiance to this guy. So they're waiting for him to give this back, and it's almost coming up in the 11th hour. I think I think it was like December 28th, and they still had, they just received word, but now they had to like get their document from where they were to the Secretary of State and everybody that was in the government, um, and they didn't make it in time. And so it was like seven days late. Secretary of State, which, you know, maybe probably would have been lenient with anybody else, but because he had this like deep-seated hatred for the clan of McDonald, was like, F this. No way. You guys failed to meet our requirements. You guys have to pay for it. So needless to say, the McDonald clan was, like I said, late to getting uh to you know getting the word to break the oath. And Johnny Boy, the Secretary of State, was very pissed. So in January, February, 120 men from the Campbell clan uh, arrived at Clan McDonald and basically were like, hey man, our forts are just really jam-packed with people. Do you mind if we stay with you for a while? And as was customary, they respected the clans and they said, sure, we will give you room and board. Come on in. So <laughs> the Campbell clan is waiting there for like, you know, two weeks and they finally, finally get word 
that they should do, you know, they should, you know, off everybody. And so after a night of cards, everybody's having fun. The McDonald clan is going to bed and the Campbell clan just springs into action and just like kills everybody. And they stabbed about 38 men and about 40 women and children were able to escape. But it being, you know, January and February, while they did leave uh, their home, they all probably died of exposure. So that was it for the McDonald clan. Totally. And we talked about this a little bit in the Jacobite revolutions episode, or sorry, Jacobite uprising episode, but you went into some really good detail with that. So thank you for that. Um, So there's, there's two more. There's, I mean, I, we have to kind of mention bloody and paler again, because we talked about this way back in the vampires episode almost three years ago, but Vlad Tepish was kind of known for like, he actually did like throw parties and then lock the door and then kill everybody <laughs> inside just as a proof of, of strength. And he just always threw he was the psychotic. killer parties. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, but one the- more is, um, it actually goes, comes from Japan, which um, is documented in the Kojiki, which is a, the Kojiki is basically an epic poem that uh, documents the rise of the first emperor of Japan, uh, Emperor Jimu. Um, and so, um, in the second part of the Kojiki, um, basically what happens is, um, he ends up murdering all of his political rivals at a feast and very much like the Red Wedding, it starts when they sing a certain song. And I actually have the quote from a translated version here that I would love to, to read for you. Yeah, go for it. So when his Augustness Kamu Yamoto Ihare Biko made his progress and reached the great cave of Osaka, Earth Spiders with Tails, which was it was called, uh, 80 heavenly deities commanded that a banquet be bestowed upon the 80 uh, bravos, which is basically the, the brave men. Uh, thereupon he set 80 butlers, one for each of the 80 bravos, and girded each of them with a sword, and instructed the butlers, saying, When ye hear me sing, cut them down simultaneously. So the song by which he made clear to them, he set to smiting the earth spiders. The earth spiders, again, are the, are the, the, uh, the enemies. Uh, and so here's what this, how the song kind of goes lyrically. Um, into the great cave of Osaka, people entered in abundance. And uh, though people entered in abundance and are there, the children of the augustly powered warriors will smite and finish them with their mallet-handed swords. Their stone mallet swords... The children of the augustly powered, uh, powerful warriors with their mallet-headed swords, their stone mallet swords, would now do well to smite. Having this sung, they drew their swords and simultaneously smote them to death. Damn. So pretty much you have a one-to-one ratio as far as, as swords to throats to cut. That's just, that's just efficiency is what, is what that is. That, that's good planning. <laughs> that's excellent planning. Uh, you can't horrifying. call in sick today. Why? Because we need the numbers. <laughs> exactly. That's just horrifying. But um, crazy that like they they repeat that over and over again. Their mallet-headed swords. Their mallet-headed swords. The children of the warriors with their mallet-headed swords. Just like, in case you forgot, they're gonna kill you. Exactly. And with that, guys, we're gonna kind of put a pause in it for tonight. Um, for the rest of it, there's clearly way more references that we talked. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the Dothraki parallels to the Mongols or that Daenerys also has lots of parallels to Genghis Khan. Um, because yeah. we kind of talked about that a little bit in the Genghis Khan episode that we just did, but, um, you know, well, I think a good button is, you know, just look at the fact that, you know, for, you know, 
coming from somebody like myself who really wants to be, you know, a storyteller, look at the stories that are around you. You know, I mean, there are so many things out there that you can draw inspiration from to help create those stories. I mean, like, like we said before, the, you know, the war of roses, the, you know, um, Edward of, of Westminster, you know, creating a character, um, all the religious sects that are out there that are, you know, uh, the backbone for a lot of the religions that are based within this fictional show of Westeros. It's just, you know, for storytelling purposes, you know, they always say, write what you know. And it's not just like, what, what do I know, um, specifically, but, you know, look around the world for you and you can start to see things that can help beef up stories. And I mean, that's the one thing I wanted to say when you were talking about the religion part is, you know, he knows how to build a world. He's built this entire world that seems functional, that seems real, that seems, you know, like actual people inhabit it. Um, and it's all because, you know, he's taken things that we can recognize as an audience and he's put them in with just sort of this mild or even sometimes very heavily uh, added fantastical elements to it. So um, just pay attention and uh, you can see some really great stories out there. Totally, totally. I agree. So let's get into some feedback, huh? This week in listener feedback. Um, so first of all, we have to issue a correction. I made a boo-boo with the Olympics episode. I said that um, that speed walking was no longer in the Olympics, and I was wrong. Um, the event name is different than I'm used to. The event name is called race walking, and it is still very much um, in the Olympics. Um, we were given that feedback by a couple different uh, listeners. I won't mention who. Um, but mea culpa, that was my bad for misreading the event names. And I actually consulted the, 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 the Olympic Committee's website. So I was going off of the list of events there. So I, I just, I misread it is what it came down to. As simple as that. Sorry. Um, Fired. You know, we haven't issued a correction in a long time. So I'm actually kind of happy about that. that well, that's the first one in like months. Uh, I helped host this episode. Let's wait to see. Because I may, I may change that. <laughs> We might have a bunch of them. Um, Don't ever let him on the show again. Sure. Um, we, I'll read one more because uh, we actually have a lot of feedback to read. And since uh, I, I have the emails pulled up, I'll just read this last one. Um, it'll be from uh, Sassy. It's just gushing fam, Al Heinerds. I used to work with Sean at that brewery in that one place in Colorado. Oh, wow. And one day he came in and proudly proclaimed that his brother would be starting a podcast and that we all needed to listen to it. At the time, yeah. in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, great. His brother's starting a podcast about movies. Well, that's going to be <laughs> um, <laughs> I was very, very wrong. I have been hooked from the start and have loved how the dynamic has grown and changed over the years. So I'm so excited to see where it will go. Uh, perhaps more entomology episodes, of course. We will, Nerds and Words is going to happen eventually, I promise. Uh, I've never written, written in before, but I have recently moved to Columbia and have been catching up on the episodes that I missed from both NOH and NOF while setting up my new life. Thank you for being such great companions. Uh, you've moved me to Spain, all over Colorado, and now to Columbia. Wow. Stay nerdy. Sassy, that's an awesome email. Like, thank you for being so candid. Like, that, that's just beautiful. What do you do that you, know, you have to be in Columbia? I want to know that. Like, that's a cool... Oh, she's a, she's a drug lord. You didn't know that? She became a drug oh. lord. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. makes sense. <laughs> Instead of peddling beer, she's not peddling cocaine. So, um, <laughs> she goes back and forth on her little bicycle to different shops to see if they want to buy her cuts. Yeah, that's not funny. People die because of the cocaine trade. But you know what? Whatever. Um, 
and so there we have it. We do have much more we'll read when we get Eric and Sarah back in the fold. Uh, and we will we'll go through the rest of them. people don't know um, who I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, dude, episode 151, thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. Yeah, well, you, you played into my sensibilities of television, and then you were like, there's a historical spin. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll play into your historical bit. So, no, it was a lot of fun, man. Like I said, there were some things in here that I wasn't expecting uh, as far as historical parallels. So, it was... Uh, I learned as much as I was a part of it. And I think that makes up for everything. So, what are you making up for, Dave? Well, you know. You know. Um everything no but seriously like if you that's the best part about this right is that you dive in and you realize holy crap not only are these writers well educated but they're educating us in the process so Mm -hmm. i tip my hat to them by the way thank you for the feedback if you'd like to give us more feedback you can do that by a couple different ways we do accept westerosi raven uh however probably a more efficient method would be to go to neuronomy.com, click on that talkback button, and you can give us feedback that way. Or you can, of course, follow us on the interwebs at, through Facebook and Twitter or Instagram. Just look, look for at Nerdonomy. You will find us, I promise you. By the way, if you're at nerdonomy.com, you might want to hit the donate button because we kind of need a new computer for the Nerd Cave. So uh, if you can help us out with that, that'd be awesome. Or, of course, you can use, so you can support us through the Audible link on the right side of the page or through any of the uh, Amazon affiliated links from our older episodes. You And if you're interested by what we've talked about and you really want to get into Game of Thrones, by using our Audible link, you can download Game of Thrones, the book. And you can listen to it. It's 30 hours. I recommend for heavy traffic. Yeah. That's and, a lot of time. I'm sure you can read plenty of others or listen to others from the Fire and Ice um, series as well. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah. And on that note guys uh it's that time so until we meet again stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye later we do have enough food for the winter yes oh right um I believe that... I, I thought you had to pick up the food. I, I, I thought that was your... No? Was it mine? Oh. Oh, boy. Well, I have Twinkies. <laughs>